good to be with you all this morning. Um, for those I haven't met, my name is Sarah. I use the pronoun she and her. My Dharma name is Dojin, which means um, path of love or path of relationship. Um, I think my, my introductory blur will get a little shorter as I give more talks in Brooklyn, but <laughs> I feel it is important always to say that um, I occupy a number of different identities, which I work with in, in the Dharma, you know, in terms of practice and um, like we all do. And um, because of that, there are some things, even though I have a great intention to offer something supportive to each of you, um, the ways that my social and cultural conditioning obscures my seeing, my view, um, means that even with that intention, I can cause harm. So um, if I do that, I do want to know. I do welcome, I welcome feedback around that. And, um, and I know that's, um, that's hard to give that feedback. So you may not want to, <laughs> but I'm just saying I'm open to it. Um, right now I'm in Northern California. A week from today we'll be in Brooklyn, um, earnestly looking for apartments to live in. So we're moving closer to those of you who are in Brooklyn. We are in the process of like world unbuilding. You know, there's world building. <laughs> We're world dismantling for our family here. It's so uh, poignant and challenging. And um, yeah, my heart is tenderized by this process of uh, enacting the impermanence of our home. Um, so for me, Zen practice, uh, Bodhisattva practice, is this tremendous tradition of support for human beings to live in reality, essentially. Like if I had to describe what I think practice is. And, um, and, and an essential and reality is one piece of, of one, one foundational chunk of reality is impermanence. And I think another foundational chunk of reality is um, connection of everything. So non-duality, non-separation. And then ironically, the first thing I wanna do is set up a contrast. I don't know if it's exactly a duality, but you know, we don't have to take it too seriously. But I, but I wanna set up two fields for all of us to, to feel into. So in one field, like on, <laughs> I'm putting this on my left, on one field, and then just see how you feel with these descriptors. There is wholeness, integration, connection. And the other field, is, oh, actually, I want to add to that side. It's messy, <laughs> complicated, but integrated. The other side is separate, isolated, like the mind of separation, disconnection, 
disintegration, reductive, siloed. And the second field I think of as suffering. And the first field lately I started to think of as home. So that's what I want to talk about, home, arriving home. Delightfully, last night when I looked at my email, there was a the monthly Brooklyn Zen Center newsletter written by, by Ryan was all about home. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm not alone. And it included this verse, these verses from Dogen Zenji, the founder of Soto Zen. But do not ask me where I'm going as I travel in this limitless world where every step is my home. I was like, oh, maybe I should just read that and stop there. <laughs> um, but I won't stop there because I want to share a couple stories. But that's essentially, that's, that's what's been in my heart. Every step I take is my home. Um, so I've been thinking about home. I've been, I, I've been more than that. I've been like feeling into home for a number of months, actually, um, after hearing this teaching from Thich Nhat Hanh, who, what I, what I heard him say, what I heard that he had said was, all of my teaching could be summarized into two phrases. I have arrived, I am home. And that's, and it's huge that he's talking about. And as, as that's been moving like a koan in my heart and my being, um, a couple of stories, one from the Buddhist tradition and one from uh, the early biblical uh, Judeo-Christian tradition have been moving in me and I wanted to just offer them and see how they are for you. So the first story is a story from the Lotus Sutra um, about the prodigal child. It's traditionally the story of the prodigal son. It's about a son and a father, but I, I would I would like to gender neutralize it because I think it works fine. <laughs> so it's about a parent and a child, although it's about a parent and a child over many, uh, over, they have these huge lifespans. So maybe they live in a different realm than us. They live like hundreds of years. And the story is, uh, there's also a story, and, and I'm actually not gonna talk about it. There's a story in the Christian tradition in, in the gospel of Luke of the prodigal son. I don't know actually, it, it, I wonder if, it came from this earlier story. I don't know. And that's actually not the, not the one I'm talking about today. But the Lotus Sutra one, the story goes essentially like this. Um, there was a, a young person born into a family of tremendous wealth and uh, power. And it sounds like a single parent family, actually, when they tell the story. And um, as they grew, they wanted, they just were restless and wanted to see what else was out there. Similar to the story of the, of the historical Shakyamuni Buddha. And so they left home and wandered. So often, like in lots of our Zen things, this gets referred to wandering to the dusty realms of other lands. It's often talking about this story. Actually, a couple of weeks ago when Chimio was reading from the Raihe Tokuzui, there was uh, a quote from Dogen, because they're ignoramuses who have left their land and their father to wander in other lands. That's referring in part to this story. So they wander for years 
and forget who they are and have difficult times. And their parent never forgets them, is waiting, waiting, and like decades go by in this story. And, and in some versions of the story, the parent also moves and maybe even changes their name. There's different versions. So that decades later, the now adult child comes through a town where their, their original parent is, you know, a, a powerful royal, kind of royalty person in that region. Um, but they have no idea. They've forgotten where they come from and who they come from. But the parent seeing the child, even decades later, knows immediately, this, oh, this is my child. And so they send these fancy looking people <laughs> to bring the child back to the home. But the child is so distant from this world that they're, all they feel is fear when these bejeweled people are approaching them. And they think they're being accused of uh, stealing or something. So they're just afraid and the parent under, just like somehow understands the whole picture. It's like, oh, they don't know who they are. So the parent says, okay, leave them alone, leave them alone. And instead then, in some of the versions, they dress themselves in like rags and they, or, or they send somebody and they go to the child and they say, you know that fancy house over there, they need somebody to work in the stables and, and like clean up the manure. Are you up for that? Is that something you can do? And the, and the child was like, oh yeah, I, that's fine, sure. I've done that before. So they come to the house and they live in the stable and they shovel the manure and they sleep with the animals in the barn. And then over decades, the next chunk of decades, um, the parent slowly gives their adult child more and more responsibility brings them closer and closer in until many years later as the parent is dying they say to everyone this is my child actually and always has been and now the child is ready to receive the mantle of the all the all the wealth and power they can deal with it Um, and it's a story, most of the stories, many of the stories in, in the Lotus Sutra are about upaya or skillful means. So this is a story of the way that the Buddha and the Dharma can skillfully bring in human beings. And there's a view, there's a couple views here. Like I think one of them is human beings are the prodigal child. We have a tendency to forget who we are. We have a tendency to wander away from our essential being. And the wealth here has nothing to do with worldly wealth, you know. This is the wealth of our Buddha nature. This is like the power and the strength of our Buddha nature, of our essential well-being um, that we forget. And that then if there are skillful teachers in the world, they help us. They're like, come, come over here, just a little closer, a little closer, slowly, slowly. But there's a view, and there are other parts of the Lotus Sutra that really point to this too. There's a view, a fundamental view of a human being in this story. This is how it's living in my heart is that we all have Buddha nature. That's what it means to be human, that we're essentially 
home in liberation and awakening. But then we, but then again, we forget and we wander. The other story that's been living in my heart is the story of um, um, Eve and Adam in the Garden of Eden. And but one thing I want to acknowledge in talking about this story is um, it's a deep one. I don't know if people have uh, the story in their his in their backgrounds. This was a, this was a very big story for me in my developmental life. I was raised as a Catholic a Christian, and even as a child, I was. I could there I could tell there was a lot to this story. <laughs> And I also want to name that like later in my life, in my high school education, actually, I was exposed to, uh, at, at a Catholic girls school, nonetheless, I, I understand that there are reclamations of this story by feminist and liberation theologians, you know, and by feminist and liberation practitioners of people. Um, there's ways of reclaiming the story that are really uh, liberating. But what I want to share today is um, how I experienced the story in my development and and how I, it seems to me that, that it impacts dominant white Christian culture, you know, in the United States. That this story is sort of, this story is a fundamental uh, piece of setting up the gender binary, for one thing. You know, Eve, I don't know if people know the story. Um, traditionally, Eve was made from Adam's rib, you know, so that the female is derivative of the male, like already there. So when I, even when I was a kid, that just pissed me off. <laughs> um, but, the, but here are some of the elements of the story that I think are interesting to consider. Um, Eve, Eve is now created, and they live together in the Garden of Eden, and one of the features of that is like this really close connection to God. They're close, they're in conversation. They're like, they're with God in the Garden of Eden and everything is provided, you know, that idea of like abundance and richness. They don't need clothes. They don't want for food. There's food everywhere. There are no dangerous animals. Um, in Buddhist cosmology, the world that's described here is, is more like a deva realm or heaven realm, right? Like a place where there's not suffering, which, we understand in the Buddhist tradition, like not an easy place to practice, too eat, too too soft, you know, too <clears throat> not not enough suffering. <laughs> um, and then you know that I I can't. I'm sorry that I I should have looked more into it if I had more time. If I wasn't like dismantling my home, um, but but the serpent is there. He can get there. He. That's really not fair. Um, and and there's this big snake, you know. And even as a child, I was like, something about the story. This is about sex somehow. <laughs> and then I felt more so because no one would acknowledge that. I was like, but he's a big snake, and the people are naked, and I don't know. I feel like we're talking about sex somehow. And um, and he tempts Eve. But I think another piece for me that was so significant is he, he, he's on the tree of knowledge and he's tempting her with fruit from the tree of knowledge. So he's like, don't you want to know? 
And Eve was my hero when I was little because she did want to know. She was like, I need to know. Like she was curious and she was bold and she was rebellious, you know, and disobedient. <laughs> and Adam was like, no, we shouldn't do that. God said not to. But Eve was like, I, I need to. I have to. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just giving you my childhood rendering of this. So I thought Adam was a little too obedient, you know, to be interesting. And um, so she, she takes from that apple and then, um, of course, God knows. She tries to hide it, but, and then um, they are banished forever. And, and other consequences also come from this. Eve is to blame for all of our suffering. <laughs> she is to blame for the pain of childbirth. You know, like there's this idea of like someone's to blame and it's Eve. You know, that was another piece that was very painful for me as a child. That in her, that in her desire to know and to understand, she um, cut them off from God, from this closeness with God. Cut them off from eat the Garden of Eden and cast them out. So there's this fundamental idea of exile. And in my heart, when I, when I think about this as an adult, I'm like, oh, that was what was communicated to me. That what it, what it was, so that the archetype of a human being from this story in the way I received it wasn't particularly liberating. It was a story, you know, it's a story of where original sin comes from, which, um, you know, is this idea that instead of, so it's, it's quite different than the idea of essential Buddha nature. <laughs> it's the idea that essentially human beings are born with a kernel of badness. And that the way that we work with ourselves is we, we force ourselves into goodness. But if we're not careful, we'll slide into badness. You know, and again, that's very reductive, but that was the story. And we're essentially exiled. It's irredeemable. We cannot go back. Um, and then in the Christian tradition, there is an idea of redemption and going back, but it's mediated through Jesus. It's not essential to us as, as individuals. Again, like this was just my experience of this. I was uh, talking with uh, my partner, Charlie, about this. Who, Charlie was not raised religiously, but we were talking, we, we often, this is nice for me because I can be like, well, were you impacted by the story? You know, even though you had no religious upbringing and we talk about how he was. Um, and I was saying, you know, there, this actually has some real life consequences. Like, like the idea of original sin for the people I grew up around was a really real thing. For example, my grandmother was a labor and delivery nurse for her whole life. She was the head nurse on that unit for many, many years. And she was telling me one day, she's like, you know, I just, I, this, her name was Grammy. She's like, I baptize them all, Sarah. <laughs> I baptize the Hindus. And the Jews and the Muslim babies, I baptized them all. And I was like, Grammy, I think that's a little disrespectful. <laughs> and she's like, I know. She was often working with, with children in uh, neonatal intensive care. She was worried that um, they would die. And, and often the children she worked, it was not often, but she, it was regular that some of these babies did not live long. And because she was worried that they would die, she baptized them because she didn't want them to go to purgatory because in her in her cosmology, if you weren't baptized, that's what happened. Uh, even though she could recognize that they, these were babies that came from a lot of different religious traditions. 
And I was like, Graham, what kind of God would, would banish an, a newborn infant to a place of pain? She's like, I know, I know, but I do it just in case. <laughs> and I point that out to be like, you know, my grandmother's heart was more expansive than a reductive story about original sin, and yet it impacted her behavior, you know, um, in, a, in a real way. And as Yoko was pointing to in her talk last week, there are these impacts, you know, cultural impacts, that even if we can think beyond them, our bodies and our activities and even parts of our mind may still be enacting them like that. She actually, you know, she actually feared. And in that conversation, I was like, I'm pretty sure uh, there, there isn't any kind of God that would do that. And she agreed with me. So those are just different, you know, mythical stories that we can feel into. Thich Han's um, teaching, I, I have arrived, I am home. Um, I was reminded about it from a number of different sources over a few week period, including um, I was listening to the book Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet, which I really recommend. And I was grateful to encounter that book when um, I was just in a time of uh, intense stress and uh, crisis in our family. There was a couple of weeks that were really painful. And I was, and then I would, when I couldn't do anything else, I would listen to this book. And I, and I recommend it because it's really a book about working with our despair as human beings. Um, it, it's about like efficacy and agency in relation to our profound despair. Um, in the book, he talks about, he tells a story, here's another story, about um, a, a several years after, I think it was after the Vietnam War, when he was working with a, num a group of people in Singapore, and they were, they were responsible for trying to get uh, families, a number, maybe it was like hundreds of people who were on boats, they were trying to get them they're refugees into Singapore, but they weren't able to, they were having trouble doing that. There was a lot of resistance from the government to letting the people in. And in the middle of the night, um, at two in the morning, see if you can picture this, like if you had experiences like this, so people are sleeping and resting, there's banging on the door and these immigration officials barge in in where they were all sleeping and they took Thich Nhat Hanh's um, travel documents and they said you have 24 hours to get out of this country there's there's no there's nothing you can you know that's what you have to do or we're, or we're gonna cut we're gonna arrest you and they left and Thich Nhat Hanh describes that he remembers every breath he took for the rest of that night because what he did and what he, what he had trained himself for many, many years previous to that to do in a moment of intense crisis was to um, 
arrive in his body, arrive in his breath. So he sat, he spent the rest of the night sitting and walking in meditation. And he, and he says, I remember every single breath. And he also said, um, because I thought to myself, if I can't find peace here, I'll never find it. So in this place of intense crisis and, you know, clenching, <laughs> he, had, he had deep confidence in his Dharma practice. And then what Thich Nhat Hanh describes is that in the morning, a thought occurred to him, which was that the French ambassador had secretly been, had clandestinely been supporting them. Couldn't do that in openly, but was doing this on the sly. And they reached, and could they reach out to that person and ask for their intercession for like 10 more days? And they did that and it worked out okay. But the point uh, that he, that Thich Nhat Hanh wanted to make was that idea of reaching out to their French ambassador was not available until he had returned to himself, you know, returned to his, like, essentially like regulated his nervous system. <laughs> you know, we can talk about in terms of neuroscience, like brought his prefrontal cortex back online and could creatively think. And this is true for us, right? Like we can't creatively think when we're in crisis and stress and strain. And so, and so there's, but I think more than neuro, more than simply neurologically, when we return to our breath, one of the things we're, we're doing is we're returning to our relationship with all things. Like we're, you know, the breath, first of all, it's wonderfully available all the time to living human beings. But secondly, it's always teaching us that we're not separate. You know, so just, so if we're really present for just an in-breath and just an out-breath, it has to shake up our illusion of being separate because we're literally experiencing ourselves being dependent on the environment around us and, and contributing to it, you know, in, in exchange with the world around us. We can forget that. <laughs> You know, we can, we can think, oh, I'm breathing instead of like the whole world is breathing in everything, everything makes this possible for me to breathe in. Everything makes it possible for me to breathe out. So that's why it's, it's an amazing uh, possibility to come fully into our breath and that, and in the book, Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet, he, uh, it's, it's a book that's written both by Thich Nhat Hanh and his student, Sister True Devotion. Um, they talk about this practice, you know, this elemental practice of returning to our breath, which is, the, it's like the, the seed of arriving home in reality that's always available to us. And I think another piece that um, that I that I don't even feel like I could describe fully, and and I feel like Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, his teachings are so fully about this. Is when we arrive fully in our breath and in our body, we arrive with everything. 
we don't just arrive with the parts of ourselves that we like or that are good, quote unquote, or that are virtuous. You know, like, in, are people familiar with his, his work, uh, Call Me By My True Names? It's about, it's a, it's a poem about being integrated with everything. Even things we, we call evil, understanding. I'm not apart from that. And that, and that that's arriving home. It doesn't mean we don't make clear distinction about harmful behavior. And it doesn't mean that we don't take care. And it doesn't mean that we don't accept responsibility for harm that we cause or interrupt harm of others. You know, like there are evil actions, for, you know, even though that's a reductive term. But we can't, as human beings and as bodhisattvas, we can't respond skillfully if we think we're separate from it. Or this is the, this is the teaching as I hear it, from, particularly from Thich Nhat Hanh. The only way we can respond skillfully and in a way that might be transformational and liberating is if we understand, I'm a part of this. And this is how I take care. And this is what I hear in arriving home. I was, when, when I was growing up, and I see this a lot in um, a number of the cultures I'm in now, there's an idea that to be responsible means to try to control things. I feel like I, I see that culturally around me all the time or to be adults or to be grown up you know is to try to control things the dharma offers a very different orientation which is to take care of things is to show up fully with them and take care to to be there with all of it and to, to arrive fully in, in home, you know, where all the things are. When things get difficult, we get closer. When things are painful, the teaching is get closer, not further away. But I also wanna name and acknowledge that for me and for many people, the dominant cultures that, that I move around in, they're really trauma cultures. <laughs> There's a lot of trauma. And so um, an essential way of being is to be dissociated, to use that language, you know, to not, to, to learn how to not arrive home. And that's why I think I brought up the story of the Garden of Eden, because I feel like it tells something about an essential teaching like, why would you want to arrive home in, your, in the fullness of your being if you were taught that that's a liability? Like, don't be whole. Some parts of you are evil. <laughs> some parts of you are terrifying. But some parts of you might disobey God. You know, like, don't be whole. Be fractured. Be compartmentalized. Lift away from your body into your intellect. You know, are these messages that any of you got? <laughs>
so so and to honor how how deep that those teachings have been for so many people and also to honor that to um to compartmentalize and to dissociate and to fracture ourselves is adaptive right like was protective was a way to try to deal i think particularly for those of us who who have inherited whiteness you know we occupy that location in our worlds in our environment um, there is so much violence in our history i feel this like i can just say this for myself as a particular human being that that there's so much teaching about compartmentalizing because there's such an effort to push down and ignore the violence of our history that my the people whose whose shoulders i stand on and and myself perpetrate but the dharma is offering us it's okay it's okay we are capacious enough to be whole we really can do this we can't do it as individuals. We cannot do it as separate beings. Like this is where refuge in Sangha is a very real thing. And we can do it with each other. We can arrive home in all that we are with all of our identities. You know. So I just wanna share one more thing which is so in this process of life dismantling i'm sure i'm sure all of us have gone through it at some point you know you you find the old stuff i had no idea i had written so many journals <laughs> i was like whoa <laughs> who knew um for the for people my age there's lots of letters and i and i'm holding them and i'm like oh i, don't, I can't let go of these they don't these don't even exist anymore <laughs> um, and I also found uh, some poems, some poetry, from the years I lived at Tassajara. So I lived for a number of years at uh, Tassajara, the monastery in, in Big Sur, California. And found this poem that's about the story of the prodigal child from the Lotus Sutra. And it is, this is from a younger version of myself, um, but it, it, it's also, um, I'm like, oh, Oh, I was working on this a while ago. So I wanted to share it with you. Um, at the time, I was, uh, a lot of my time at Tassar, I worked in the physical plant. So I did physical plant maintenance. And I was doing a lot of plumbing at this era of my life. And uh, I also wrote a lot of poetry. So it, the, I, I wrote a whole series called The Principles of Plumbing. And this, I'll just read you the, this was a five part thing. This is just this first part. Um, and it's about, it's about returning home. Because in our years of wandering, we've somehow lost the capacity to return home through the front door. It is tenderly, skillfully suggested that we come around back and shovel shit. This somehow we can do. This somehow is the only acceptable way back in. And so we put in our time and we haul this solid human excrement 
And as the days and nights pass, when all else fails, we learn to remember we've contributed to this pile. Over time, we come to know the weight of it, familiar with the heft of it, the apparent solidity of what it is we've always leave behind of ourselves. And eventually we are acclimated to its substance. We learn to not mind the smell so much. The sounds it makes in its shifting. Eventually more than anything, it starts to look like the ground we walk on, the very earth we stand on. And then we know there's not much left to fear. The first principle being always wash your hands. Now wash your hands and go open the door. Thank you very much. May our intention deeply penetrate every... Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.